Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, good to bring the word every Sunday. And um, as some of you know, Christine and I uh, came from Pittsburgh a little over a year ago. And when Christine and I purchased our first home in Pittsburgh, the kitchen was, let's say, less than luxurious. Uh, actually, the entire house was less than luxurious. Uh, Christi- Christina didn't want the house at first. I had to, to sell it a little bit. And I remember uh, taking one of those real estate printouts and drawing some window boxes underneath the window. Look, honey, it could be great if you just... And so we, we had to, uh, to envision together a little bit about what the house could be uh, if, it, if it underwent some renovations. Anyway, besides being small and having no dishwasher and very little counter space, the kitchen had beat up white metal cabinets with red handles, uh, an outdated range hood periwinkle walls, amen, and floors boasting this dingy, pale, yellowish thing on the floor, uh, speckled yellow linoleum, I guess. So let's bring that picture up if we can. Um, One nice feature was that they installed the cabinets by the door there before they put the molding on, so the one little drawer that you see, if you pulled it out, you could only pull it out as far as the molding. Uh, it, it was a wonderful feature that they put in there. Now, besides all of that, it wasn't bad. It was functional. You could, uh, you could use it sometime. No. Uh, after several months of enjoying these opulent features that you can see uh, and these amenities, we began renovation. You can click to the next one. We gutted most of it. And uh, we left some plaster walls uh, uh, that were there. We began to rebuild. Little by little, it started to take shape. Dust, debris. We had to tear down to build up. After much blood, sweat, and man hours, we almost finished. Come on, you know what that's like. It's like the last 5% takes you about 25 years to get done. You're like, we're finally done, and it's time to retire. Anyway, it, uh, it became a beautiful kitchen. Let's take a look at the, the last one. Uh, it really transformed. And, um, you know, in order to restore beauty, you need to tear down. You need to tear down what's there to allow room for rebuilding. You can take it down, Kevin, thanks. Jesus renovates people. Jesus is offensive because he wrecks confidence in human ability and aptitude. And instead of building self-esteem in us, he tears us down in order to rebuild us in him. Stronger, tougher, more resilient, unstoppable, and quite beautiful. The tearing down obviously hurts, but the rebuilding is beautiful. Jesus was killed for a reason. He taught things that people didn't like. He offended. He preached and people got mad. He preached and people wanted him dead. He preached and people walked out. Now Jesus, absolutely, he is radically famous. Hugely successful, but we oftentimes forget how loathed and unpalatable he is for so many people. 
In John 6, Jesus dismantled pride and independence and built upon the sovereign grace of God. He tore people down in order to leave room for building them up in the gospel, but so many refused. His teaching caused his disciples to turn away from him, to walk away from him, because the truth is not always immediately appealing. Does Jesus offend you? We need to ask ourselves, have I walked out on Jesus long ago? Or am I with him every step? We need to dig deeper into ourselves beyond the veneer, beyond the surface, and test ourselves to see whether we find life in the hard teachings of Jesus or offense. This makes all the difference, really. Your response to the words of Jesus says so much about you, where you are right now. Are you listening closely to Jesus? How do you hear Jesus? With delight? With doubt? With scorn? Let's find out if we're tracking with Jesus, even in the tough things he teaches. This sermon will be helpful Jesus continues to dismember his listeners' self-sufficiency. Jesus eradicates self-confidence. Jesus eradicates self-confidence. Deep within the human heart is the desire to do it ourselves. And Jesus comes along and teaches us we can't. He eradicates our self-confidence. The crowd of John 6 was self-confident confident. They denied their desperate spiritual need. They thought in earthly terms, not spiritual terms. They were unwilling to come to Jesus and trust in him as the all-satisfying bread for their soul. They wanted Jesus to advance their agenda, to give them what they wanted on their terms. Now, we're tempted with this every day. Our culture celebrates independence and autonomy and anything that threatens that is intolerant or in thing that threatens that is intolerant or inconfidence defines American culture and sadly many churches as well. Much doctrine taught in the church today crescendos with us, not the cross. Norman Vincent Peale was a gifted pastor. In just three years, his church, his first church, grew from 40 to 900. Eventually, he pastored the Marble Collegiate Church in Manhattan, New York, and under his leadership, the church grew from 600 to over 5,000 in 52 years, which made him one of New York's most famous preachers. His well-known book, The Power of Positive Thinking, remained on the New York Times bestseller list for over three and a half years consecutive years. It has sold millions of copies in multiple languages since 1952. Now, why mention Norman Vincent Peale? Peale popularized the positive thinking movement that mingled self-confidence with the Christian faith. The first chapter of his bestseller is titled, Believe in Yourself. And in that book, he wrote this, quote, Believe in Yourself. Have faith in your abilities. Without a humble but reasonable confidence in your own powers, you cannot be successful or happy. End of quote. 
His book and his philosophy launched him into global fame. He even rubbed shoulders with presidents. He got awards from presidents, Ronald Reagan, in fact, the the Medal of Honor, I believe, as he became one of the world's premier Christian leaders of the time. He also paved the way for uh, personalities like Robert Schuller, Joel Osteen, and even Oprah Winfrey. Norman Vincent Peale made self-confidence appear to be a Christian virtue. This philosophy continues to be mingled into the doctrine of many churches and professing Christians. His influence in the church is still felt today. Now, how can teachers and preachers like Norman Vincent Peale develop such broad appeal? Think about it. They put us at the center of faith. They draw people in by appealing to their flesh. We love to be flattered. We love to be affirmed and made much of. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not the message he brought. Jesus lovingly shatters our self-confidence. The gospel is anti-self-confidence. The self-centered person finds repentance of sin and genuine dependence upon Christ undesirable. In fact, they find it impossible. The self-confident person knows nothing of the radical love of Jesus, for they know nothing of their radical need for Jesus. The gospel eradicates all self-confidence. Watch what happens when Jesus collides with self-confidence. Verses 60 and 61. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who couldn't listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? This was from his followers, his devotees. There were Jews, his disciples, and then his 12 disciples, three groups. And verses 60 and 61 refer to the large group of his disciples who attached themselves to his leadership and teaching. His teaching was hard for them, not necessarily because it was intellectually hard to understand, but because it was harsh. It was intolerable. It was unpleasant to hear. It was hard because his words confronted their sin and their self-confidence. They said, who can listen to it? As if to say, this is unbearable to listen to. We won't listen to this. They didn't want to understand. So Jesus asked them, do you take offense at this? He knew the answer. He knew they were offended. So why were they so upset? His disciples probably identified with the Jews who in verse 41 grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were bothered by his self-confidence and claim to divinity. Many people find Jesus intriguing. They like Jesus. They really do. He seems like a nice guy with, says some nice things. They find Jesus intriguing, maybe enough to even follow him a little bit. They like the idea of going to heaven instead of going to hell. That's appealing to many people. They, um, they like religion. They might even like morality to a certain extent, but they don't want Jesus to change them. They want to stay the same, maybe follow Jesus when it works for them. They don't want Jesus or other Christians confronting their sin. 
No, that, that's unpleasant. They just want the benefits of Jesus without fanatical commitment, which Jesus requires. Jesus hates that. He will not accept that. The flesh and blood talk really disturbed them. It threw them a curveball. Nothing Jesus said softened their hearts. They bristled. They stiffened. Charles Spurgeon said, The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. Jesus continued in verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? That's resurrection and ascension talk. That's I'm coming back to life and going back to the Father kind of talk. Jesus was basically saying, and I think somewhat sarcastically saying, would it make a difference if you saw me go back to heaven where I came from? Then would you believe? And he knew the answer to that too. Then in verse 63, which should absolutely grab your attention, it's a really important verse, Jesus said this, it is the Spirit who gives life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. That smashes human autonomy, leaves no room. Now, there are multiple views of what Jesus means by flesh. He's for sure correcting their thinking. They weren't thinking right. But I think he means that the human mind, the human heart, the human will, in fact, nothing human, helps God out in salvation. The Spirit alone gives life, and nothing earthly helps out. That's what he's saying. God draws sinners by his Spirit through his word. God ultimately makes the choice. God ultimately decides Didn't Jesus already explain God's sovereignty, his sovereign grace earlier? Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's God's sovereign grace. Drop down to verse 44 of John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's God's effectual drawing grace, his sovereign grace. Jesus becomes Exciting for people when the Spirit gives them life. Jesus even said, whoever feeds on me lives because of me. That's sovereign grace. I want you to remember the word monergism. Monergism. That's kind of a tough word, but I want to explain it for you here. Mono means one. You've probably heard that. And ergo means work. I think ergonomics is the setup of like workstations and things. So ergo work, one work, one is working. Monergism means someone is born again. They're regenerated. They come into new spiritual life only because of the Spirit's work and not because of human will or work that helps out in any way. That's monergism. Monergism means the Spirit regenerates someone and then they believe. That faith is the gift of God, Ephesians 2. Now, synergism is different. Syn, S-Y-N, means together, and ergo means work, to work together. It means two are working together, synergism. In theology, synergism means someone is born again, someone is regenerated, someone comes into new spiritual life, 
by the Holy Spirit working together with the will and work of man. Man contributes to his new birth. Synergism means that the choice of our faith leads us to a heart change. That the heart change is after an action that we do. We work together with God. Synergism can't be. Probably the most popular view today in the American church is synergism. But that can't be because Jesus only credits the Holy Spirit and says the flesh is useless. It doesn't help at all. Not even a little bit. That's what Jesus is saying. That's a crushing blow to self-confidence. That's a crushing blow to people who are like, I want to do something. I want some of this credit of my eternal life. I want to believe that God chose me because something in me led him to choose me. We don't want to say, God chose me out of his pure good pleasure and purpose, not because of anything. In fact, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't anything in you or in me of why he would want us. He wants us because he's good. And he's powerful enough to save. John 3 helps us understand what is meant here in John 6. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that sounds just like John 6, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The Spirit alone gives life. That's the point. The Spirit alone brings people to salvation. The flesh gets no credit at all. Human aptitude or ability gets no credit at all. Jesus tears down to build up. Professor and author Matthew Barrett writes this, quote, The new birth is not a work conditioned on our will, but rather any spiritual activity by our will is conditioned upon God's sovereign decision to grant us new life by the Spirit. End of quote. And I love that quote because it absolutely parallels what Jesus said in John 3 and John 6. That means behind everything spiritual that you do, that we do, is God's motivating grace. Now, people find Jesus offensive because God hasn't supernaturally softened their hearts. They remain hard. They remain self-confident, self-sufficient. I don't need you, God. And we're going to hit this again in a little bit, but what I want you to see is that Jesus disassembles self-confidence throughout John 6. Belief is about the Spirit. Are you beginning to see why his message is so controversial and scandalous? Why, Why his message brought out this interesting response from the crowd? God's sovereignty in salvation is scandalous because it wipes out human independence and ability. I read a study note that sums it up so very well. It said this, For the gospel reveals, that's the good news of Jesus, the gospel reveals the depth of our need and our total inability to save ourselves. When we trust in our own cleverness or obedience or resources or abilities, we abhor God's grace. But when God kindly deconstructs our vaunted self-sufficiency, our hearts come alive again. Now here's what that's saying. The good news of Jesus exposes our desperate need for God. 
That's what the gospel does. And our total powerlessness to save ourselves. That's why we are in desperate need of Jesus Christ. We cannot do this eternal life thing, this live forever thing, this heaven thing, without totally treasuring him. Crediting human ability at all is discrediting God's grace. God lovingly deconstructs our self-confidence and rebuilds us on the foundation of sovereign grace. Now, how does God work his grace in us? Jesus sanctions his word alone. Jesus sanctions his word alone. Look at verse 63. Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. His words are spirit They are comprehended by the heart and mind in the invisible spiritual world, not by the natural intellect or reason or logic. His words are life. The Holy Spirit gives life graciously through the words of Jesus. The Bible contains life. Biblical preaching and teaching contain life. As much as I represent the gospel of John in these sermons, I am giving you life. God is giving you life through his word to you. Awaken soul. Live because of the words of Jesus. His words are life. Back in John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, many words are helpful. We encounter helpful words in articles and TV programs all over the place. Helpful things. But only the words of Jesus are spirit and life. His words are life. Jesus can be really, really tough to listen to. If you give Jesus a fair shake, he was not warm and fuzzy. He was not. He was hard to listen to, but he is always good He is always righteous. He always tells us what we need to hear. His words give life and his words always applaud God. So Jesus reinforces the sovereignty of God in salvation. He reinforced it all throughout John 6. We touched on this already, but it's important that you understand the sovereignty of God in salvation. This has to do with your practical day-to-day life. Verse 63, established that the spirit alone gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. Then Jesus said in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus looked at his followers. He looked at the churchgoers. They weren't going to church, but they were following him. And he says, some of you don't believe. Your hearts have no faith in me. You're here for a game. You're here to something else, but you're not here really to treasure me. He looked right at him and said to his disciples, his followers, some of you do not believe. See, hearing the truth and believing the truth are very different. There are people who go to church for years. They sit under preaching for years, gospel preaching, and it has no impact on them. They don't yet believe in Christ. They just sit there unaffected by grace because their hearts are hard. Folks in love, I think that's happening at Jerusalem Church. In love, I think there are maybe a handful of you that have come to church, maybe sporadically here and there, and you're not saved. You don't know Jesus. His word has no impact on your life. You sit under the gospel, you hear physically here, but... 
It doesn't penetrate your heart. I think that's here. Jesus said some didn't believe because Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. From the beginning of his earthly ministry, from the beginning of time, Jesus knew who would and who would not believe in him. He knew because his knowledge has no limits. He knew because his father chose each one who would believe. He even knew the future who would betray him. He basically looked right at his followers and said, I know that some of you don't believe. I know your hearts. You're not fooling me. And that takes guts to say to people, Jesus had guts, tenacity to go right in the center of the storm and to clear things out. Fearless. No matter what the consequences, he was fearless. This kind of talk wouldn't have earned Jesus' votes if he was running for an elective office. Um, they would have ran him out of town. They did try to run him out of town. But his primary concern was not popular opinion. He didn't come for votes. He came to save people. Now, in verse 65, Jesus reiterated what he said earlier in verse 44. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. God grants. God enables. God gives. That's what he's saying. Their unbelief was the reason that he said in verse 44 that no one comes or believes unless the Father draws them. And in verse 65, no one comes or believes unless it is granted by the Father. So people come and believe in Christ when God sovereignly and effectually draws them to Christ. And this happens only because God gives them their coming or belief. Once again, faith is a gift from God. God not only allows their coming, he gives them their coming. Jesus said this to his followers precisely because verse 64 is true. Some people don't believe. Why? Because God has not granted them to come. He hasn't drawn them. That kills self-confidence. And that glorifies the sovereign grace of God because if even one out of all of history comes, it's God's powerful mercy being overflowed onto that person to save them from their own wickedness. This is how someone can hear the gospel over and over again and still remain unmoved, still trust in themselves, still prefer to indulge in sin and misery rather than bow to Christ and gain unrivaled joy in Him. I mean, how do people look at the glorified, crucified Christ and all that he is to take care of sins and to turn away from him with such a desperate need for him? How do you turn from God? It's the hardness of the human heart and God's grace has not drawn them. Or we could say, in a lot of cases, God's grace has not drawn them yet. It takes sovereign grace for people to come to Jesus. Unbelief never surprises Jesus. He's not caught off guard by it. He's not blindsided. He doesn't sit around biting his nails, waiting to see who will decide to follow him or not. He already knows the outcome. He knows. Study Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. Write those down and look at it later. Notice names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 1-1, names were written in the Lamb's book of life. 
secured in the slain lamb before the foundation of the world. Jesus knows the book of life. He knows every name in the book of life. He knew Judas's name was not in the book of life and that Judas would betray him. He knew. He knew. Listen to how Paul reflected the teachings of Jesus in Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, God chose every person he would give to Jesus, that's John 6 language, every person he would draw by grace, that's John 6 language, and none would believe outside God's sovereign choice and drawing grace. The Spirit of God gives life. This is what Jesus is explaining in John 6. And some might be quick to question, Pastor, what about all the people who want to come to God? Is Jesus saying they can't come because God won't draw them or grant them the grace to come? But there's an erroneous assumption in that question. People don't want to come to Jesus. What makes us believe that people actually want Jesus? They don't. Look at John 6. These people don't want Jesus. We're going to see how they respond to him in a little bit. John 6 shows how obstinate the human heart is. God gives many, many people exactly what they want. He gives them themselves. He allows them to their own sin, and they perish for it. Others, he has mercy on. He, he pours out his loving grace as a gift, the divine application of his son for eternal life. Why is God's sovereign grace comforting for Christians? Why do we hear this type of language and say, yes, yes, this is precious to me? A lot of people fight this, but why is it precious to the Christian? Why do true disciples of Jesus hear this and rejoice? Here's why. Because God secures you despite your weaknesses and inability and imperfection. God secures you. He pursued you. He took you. He secures you. All because God wants you. He took the step. He bridged the gap. He extended the gospel of his son to you. Your salvation and your commitment to Christ depends on God's secure and keeping grace, not the willpower or performance of you. That comforts me. I am secured in him. I am his child. Even if I walk away for a time, the loving father will bring me back. Look at the parable of the, of the um, it's not coming, the son Thank you, prodigal son. That's what I was looking for. Wasn't coming. All right. The gospel is beautiful because despite our depravity and immorality, God powerfully and effectually, effectively acts on our behalf to secure for us life through his son. God takes a dilapidated, rickety shack, demolishes it, breaks it down, and rebuilds a mansion fit to house God himself. That's what grace does for you. Can you see why people walked out on Jesus? Why they got uncomfortable by what he said? Jesus offends self-confident people. Verse 66 says, after, the, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They left. They went home. These people chose Jesus. But what happened? Well, they walked away never to return because it was based on their choosing they made a definitive choice that day to reject 
Jesus. He challenged them too much. He went over the line. He was too harsh. He told them the truth, that he was eternal life. Nothing else. And they didn't want to hear that. They didn't want a crucified and bloody Messiah. They wanted a conquering political Messiah. They didn't want to be saved from their sin. They wanted to be saved from the political oppression and reinstated as the world's political superpower. They wanted their immediate needs met. And I think what John 6 does in general is explains two very different types of faith. Idolatrous faith versus saving faith. Idolatrous faith is built upon earthly wants and desires, what Jesus can give in the here and now. And saving faith is built upon a deep spiritual need of the soul, an eternal need, what Jesus is for us forever. Well, the crowd wanted to see Jesus give them something. They wanted what he gives, not him. They didn't want him. F.F. Bruce wrote, What they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. That's pretty good. Do you want most what Jesus won't give you? Or do you most crave what he actually offers in himself? That'll tell you a lot about where you are spiritually, the answer to that question. Make sure you know what Jesus offers you. Being a true disciple could easily make your life much harder but it will make it infinitely longer, infinitely, not longer, we'll all have eternity, infinitely better spiritually to enjoy Christ. Really good food never nauseates the man who is really hungry. D.A. Carson said, they were unprepared to relinquish their own sovereign authority even in matters religious and therefore were incapable of taking the first steps of genuine faith. The crowd walked out. The crowd went home. That was it. Jesus never begged, he never groveled, or watered his message down to keep a crowd. He was more committed to truth than assembling a mass of half-hearted and semi-committed followers. He drew a line in the sand. He never said, hold on everybody, please come back. I'm sorry, I, I think you all misunderstood me here. Why don't I do another miracle for you? I'll build a fire, a little campfire. I'll grab my guitar. We'll sit around. We'll sing Kumbaya. Everything will be great. Just, just why don't you come back, get back in your seats. He let them go. And it appears that only 12 main, men remained. Of all the people, Jesus knew the cost of the truth. He knew that doctrine divides, that truth, though good and right, hardens the hearts of many, and he was at peace with that. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And he knew the answer. He asked for them. Now, it is impossible to make the gospel more palatable for self-confident people. Either we remain faithful to the gospel or we change the gospel so that people like it more. But then it's not the gospel. And it has no power. Jesus knew he would offend people. Jesus knew people would walk away. He knew it was God's sovereign grace that attracted people and not worldly wisdom or influence or ingenuity or getting some popular celebrities to represent Christ. Jesus never softened his message. He told it like it is. He, he left room for people to be offended and walk out. You, you don't have to follow Jesus. But there are consequences if you don't, and there are rewards if you do. He understood why people walked away. When churches preach and teach the gospel and people leave, it doesn't necessarily mean that the church has done something wrong or that the church needs to apologize 
Um, the truth is offensive. Now, we need to make sure that we're loving people like crazy because we don't want to be the cause of them leaving because we're you know, unloving and brash and harsh with people. Uh, but the truth is offensive, and, and, truth, and churches that stand on the truth are going to offend people and perhaps dwindle their membership. It can be a tough call because the gospel inevitably will offend See, listening to the teaching of Jesus can be very, very uncomfortable and unpleasant for people, for self-confident people. But for those in need, understand how different hearing is for those who need. For those in need, they're looking for something better. They're feeling how empty everything else has left them in life. They hear the teaching of Jesus and it becomes this powerful explosion of joy. So that's what I've been waiting for. That's like what is going to give me hope now. That's good. That restores. That's medicinal, spiritually medicine, spiritual medicine for me. That's oxygen for my, you know, raspy lungs. I just need him and his breath. Why are so many people uncomfortable in church? Well, there's certainly a lot of reasons why people don't regularly attend church. Tons of reasons. But for churches preaching the truth, maybe it's because the truth offends people. They don't want to come to grips with their sin. Maybe it's because Jesus teaches tough things and actually requires you to give up a lot to follow him, to be a true disciple of him. It takes radical commitment, not just half-hearted like every other Sunday commitment. John 6 has an intriguing ending. I'll wrap up here. Jesus rebuilds with words of life. Jesus is a master craftsman, a master builder. He reconstructs us. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter was right. He nailed it. But he was a bit prideful. He said, we have believed. We have come to know. The other disciples just left, and Peter's making sure that he makes the point, hey, we're still around, Jesus. You want to pat us on the back for that? Because we didn't leave you. We have the knowledge that you are the Holy One of God. And So Jesus picked up on Peter's vain undertones, and he answers to all the 12, did I not choose you? Did I not choose you? Peter, did you really choose me? Is that what you're trying to say? Because as I remember it, I came looking for you guys. I assembled you guys. That's sovereign grace. Jesus picked them. Did you catch that those who chose Jesus walked out on him, but those Jesus chose stayed? Interesting. Why do you think that is? Think about that. Peter's words here are profound. No other teacher possesses the words of eternal life. You know, Dr. Phil has some good things to say. I find him quite helpful at times, all right? Not saying everything, just saying something. Helpful. Oprah, I've watched her show before. She's got some good stuff sometimes. And you're like, oh, that's helpful. Ted, T-E-D, don't know if you've ever seen those, those things on, on the internet and watched it. Radically helpful. Some of the most um, creative talks I've ever seen in my life on Ted. Good words. However, no one but Jesus has words of life. Aside from Jesus, no one speaks life. The, the 12 had nowhere else to go, nothing else to hear, nothing that would give them life. Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah, the one selected and set apart by God to rescue. Jesus was the holy one. And, and I think Peter must have listened very closely when Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus deconstructs us, but then he rebuilds us with beauty. He said, one of you 
is a devil. It's hard to hear. Verse 71 said, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. He was going to. That was going to happen, and it did. And Jesus knew all along that Jesus would defect. God is sovereign even over the betrayal of his son. Now, I'm going to end it up, and just so if you're looking at the board, we're going to cut the last song, all right, because our, our time is late. I want to be respectful of that, but let me, let me close with this. What won my wife in the end to purchase that house was the vision of how our house could look if it underwent significant renovations. You had to see through the grossness and see what it could be. The restoration would take time. It took us years, but the transformation at the end was worth it. We tore down to build up, and at the end, it was like, this, this is nice. This is nice. What's distressing is that so many people settle for spiritual dilapidation and decay. Rotting walls and insecure foundations sometimes coated with a beautiful veneer that looks great on the outside, but inside is really unstable. Um, it's deteriorating. And when they hear that someone wants to come in and knock some walls down and, and, and clear some things out and tear down, they're thinking, what? Uh-uh, not in here. No, no, I like the way the walls are constructed. I like the, paint, the periwinkle. I like the periwinkle. And they can't visualize how beautiful and strong and enduring things would be post-renovations. They are content with the money pit. You ever see that movie from the 80s? The money pit. Just a mess of the house. Now, it's a good thing, a really good thing, when Jesus wrecks you. Because he never leaves you wrecked. He rebuilds in him so that you're stronger, more enduring, more firm. Humble yourself. Allow allow God to wreck you this morning. And then trust in him to rebuild you with his wonderful words of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this uh, word that you give us. And I pray, God, that we can hear it, that our minds would not be offended, but that we would have heard in what Jesus said this morning the words of life. He was really tough on those people. Most walked away. They went home. They said, I don't need to hear that. But those 12, including one who would defect later on, those 11 got it or were beginning to get it. They stayed. In fact, they endured to the end. In fact, Peter betrayed him three times at the end, but then Jesus stayed with him and and he stayed with Jesus and he was one of the best pastors, evangelists, missionaries that ever lived. This is amazing what God can do to people who reject themselves and come to him for their every need. Wow, how he rebuilds. Wow, what a beautiful mansion we become to house God in us. And he makes us that way. Wow, this is good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.